You're listening to Australian Spotlight. After finishing high school in Tasmania, Bradley Trevor Grieve, or BTG, served in the Australian military before achieving success as an author, selling over 30 million books in 115 countries. We caught up in Century City for a chat. Here it is. You were born in Tasmania. That's right. Like me. But you grew up all around the world. Tell me about that. Well, it has been it has been a, a peripatetic journey. My my parents are medical professionals, both retired now. It's kind of a, a sort of a rom com cliche. My mother was a nursing sister, my father was a surgeon. <laughs> they fell in love, and uh, good things ensued. But he was teaching at the Faculty of Medicine and at uh, the University of Tasmania in Hobart when I was born. And uh, then he was awarded a scholarship to the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, Scotland. So I was still very small, portable, in fact, <laughs> which will, would seem more impressive if people could see me. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big guy. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, we, we, we awarded a scholarship. So we picked up and moved from Tasmania to Scotland. And then he continued to do postgrad uh, studies and locums. And so I didn't come back to Australia until I was pretty much ready for high school. You did come back to uh, Australia for high school and you finished and you made an interesting choice. You joined the military. Um, a terrible thing happened. I accompanied my mother to the supermarket and I'd somehow been given free reign to wander about a bit. And there was a recruiting caravan parked outside the, the shopping center and they were looking for pilots for what was then the newly uh, in-service Corsica 70 Blackhawk. And I had seen helicopters in the Bushmaster in the Northern Territory with my father on a hunting, camping, fishing trip uh, a year or two earlier. And okay. was just in awe of the way these pilots would push the actual canopy of the aircraft through the tops of the trees to flush out the cattle and the buffalo. Oh, wow. These farms are too big to fence. We're talking many thousands of acres. In fact, we went to a, a, a property that's over a million acres, if you can imagine that. These, these are cattle that have never seen a human being in their entire life. Big, wild, Brahmin, Santa Gertrudis cross cattle at water buffalo, big belligerent beasts. And I was so enthralled with their dazzling aerobatic skills. They put a 44-gallon drum of avgas in the passenger seat to balance the aircraft. <laughs> so you're sitting, you're just flying bomb, really. And they just fly with such a band. And I was so thrilled by that. When I saw this caravan recruiting for Blackhawk pilots, I, I just had to go in. So just like that, uh, my career changed. My parents and my school were not happy. <laughs> and I managed to get into to the Royal Military College, RMC. And uh, But a funny thing happened. I'd spent a fairly short period of time in my studies and on military exercises when I absolutely fell in love uh, with the, the brutal career choice of the airborne forces. And I started seeing helicopter pilots as taxi drivers and <laughs> seeing these elite combat troops is where I, where I really wanted to go. So in fact, when I was given the choice of what I wanted to do, that's what I applied for. And all just from one fateful trip to a supermarket with your mum. Always important to help your mum. So you did end up um, becoming a paratrooper. Um, I think you ended up commanding a, a paratrooper combat rifle platoon. Mm -hmm. How did life as a paratrooper change you? I absolutely loved it. And I'd like to think that anything that I've achieved in my career that sounds impressive is a reflection of the values hammered into me as a young soldier. Mm. Uh, and the paratrooper experience was especially good because it's very hard to get there. Mm. It's very hard to stay there. And so it's it's incredibly competitive, not against other people. Yes, you have to you know outlast and out-endure uh, competition and selection and so forth. But 
more importantly, it's against yourself because it's about they, they want to see who breaks. And a lot of good men break, sadly. So it was a tremendous way to be uh, incredibly aware of what your breaking point is. And it's mm. always further than you imagine it might be. But here's the thing that stuck with me. It's nothing like the movies. This heroic, you know, square-chinned, stoic-looking men in the back of the aircraft, you know, and all oh, their hair is so perfect. Um, I don't have any hair for those that are listening. <laughs> but um, it's a very tough business. But there's no elitism, even though it's an elite unit. And there's none of this screaming and carrying on because the man you scream at today checks your parachute for you tomorrow. And so eventually your military career came to an end, I gather, a bit earlier than, than what you'd planned. A miserable you- end, yes. I was on a massive joint service exercise in the Northern Territory and on the, uh, the Arafura Sea and uh, contracted a tropical respiratory infection at the end of um, what was meant to be a wet season training exercise, but it never really rained. And so and mm. I was done. I was downgraded from FE, which is called Fit Everywhere, which is what you need for Universal Combat Service, to what they call CZE, or Combat Zone Exempt, which is not much good for a paratrooper whose whole goal in life is to lead combat troops out of aircraft and make his way through the special forces. So yeah. that was it. In my early 20s, uh, 23, 24, it was, it was after all that blood, sweat, and tears, it was over. And I won't lie to you, I wept for yeah. the first time in 10 years it's such a brotherhood. It means so much to have that uh, that crimson beret and to lose it yeah. for no fault of your own. Um, and the next two years were very difficult. You know, I, I felt lost and uh, I felt liberated in the sense that I'd given my best. It wasn't my fault that it was over. Mm. And other aspirations that I had, I mean, most young boys dream of playing rugby for Australia or I certainly wanted to do that. I knew that was over, but I also had a passion for the arts. I was passionate about writing and illustrating and cartooning. And I felt that I had a license now. I'd earned my right to have a shot at that. And so that's what I buried myself in. But it was uh, it was a number of years of consistent and unrelenting failure <laughs> following that. So you always had a creative side in between the jumping out of planes. And- oh, no, absolutely. I, I enjoyed creating, uh, you know, short pieces of, of cruel fiction for student reviews. And uh, okay. so I did, I always had that. My mother and my father are actually both very talented artists in their own right. You're not the first Renaissance man in the grief. Not even, line. not even, I'm just, I'm just the sort of the most brutal <laughs> uh, and menacing in appearance. And so the first book you had published, I think came out in 2000, the hugely successful Blue Day book. Where did the inspiration come for that book? I wrote it when I pretty much hit rock bottom. I'd, uh, my career had founded as a, as a creative professional. I'd written seven books over almost eight years. Mm. None of them had been published. This was my eighth book, and I was sitting in some greasing spoon in Sydney. I had a, I had a tiny little studio apartment above in a, in a very dodgy little part of town by Central Station. So you can imagine how noisy it was. Yeah. And every time a train would come in, which was roughly every 10 seconds, there'd sort of be a great scuttling of rats and cockroaches. And I was above a, a karaoke bar and an illegal S&M brothel. So it was a colorful time in my life. <laughs> and uh, you know, I didn't have enough money to eat well or keep myself warm at, at, during the winter, the holes in the roof, rain coming in. And I started thinking about perspective on life and what I had to offer and what I'd been through. And this very funny, self-deprecating narrative came of that. And um, so it was a very honest, every book, however modest, contains a piece of you, a piece of your soul. Mm. And I think that's 
if there's any reason why it was such a big hit, that has to be why. Yeah. Because it really was a miserable time and reading the book, writing the book made me laugh and it, it's gone on to be successful. Is there a particular part of the Blue Day book that resonates most strongly with you still to this day? Well, I think what's lovely about the reason I use animals, the original version had photographs of people, but I found in human nature that we see a photograph of a person suffering or celebrating and we tend to judge them. Mm. Whereas with animals, we see them all as innocent and perfect and we see ourselves in them. You see yourself as the animal that's having a tough time and you relate to it. I would say that uh, as with so many works of literature that a there's a personal connection with, whether they're great epic literary fiction or, 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 or historical accounts or amusing visual gift books like this, mm. Different parts appeal to at different times. Um, but I, there was a, there's a particular picture I thought was hilarious. I think it talks about being, you know, dumped, divorced, or fired, or broke, or whatever it is. And there's this baby orangutan standing there looking utterly bewildered. And it amuses me on several levels. One, because when the, the book came to America, the page came back with a with a censorship note saying full frontal nudity <laughs> because of this baby orangutan and I which just could not stop laughing. But that that sense of utter bewilderment and getting back to my departure from the military, which was not on my own terms. Mm. I mean, I could have stayed on as an instructor or taken a, a desk job at, at Russell offices in Canberra, but once you've been a paratrooper, mm. you don't even think that you could possibly do that. Yeah. And so I, 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 but I remember those early years of my publishing career, which was so unsuccessful, and I just couldn't seem to get anything published. I felt like that orangutan where you just went, oh my God. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> and so the book catapulted you overnight into a global publishing phenomenon. What do you remember most about those um, heady days when it all started to change? Well, first of all, I'm very grateful that a, that a medium-sized publisher in Kansas City gave me my shot. Mm. Um, the moment of transformation was far more modest. I was living in Sydney. By then, I actually was sharing an apartment with a with a mate of mine and a lot more comfortable than I was uh, previously. Mm. And I remember it was an unusually cold, wet day in July, walking through, I think, Double Bay. And I looked into this window of this really beautiful, Double Bay, for those who don't know, it's a very affluent uh, Sydney suburb. Like Beverly Hills. A little bit like that. Yeah. And, and looked into the window of this store and they had all these expensive coats and jackets. And I'm just like, wow, they look great. And I suddenly realized that I could buy anything I wanted in that store. <laughs> and it may sound silly and superficial, but it just really shocked me that I was no longer struggling. Mm. And I actually got a little bit teary. I didn't go in there. I just, I just suddenly realized that that chapter was over. Yeah. And after a decade of struggle, I'd actually made it to that next level. And it was uh, it was a very moving moment. And then you've got to take the good with the bad. I mean, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that kind of success, but mm. there's also a great many more demands. Mm. Some people are very much cut out for that. And I applaud that. I'm not. So as, as I got more and more attention, I kind of shriveled up and actually then moved back to rural Tasmania. I read that um, one of the more than 10 million people who bought a copy of the book was Hillary Clinton. That's right. Um, another um, very important person who is a fan of yours is my mother-in-law who bought me a copy of In Praise of Idleness. Well, she's um, a remarkable woman. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> um, tell me about tell me about that book. So, the Blue Day book series had done very well internationally in 115 countries and sold. I don't know at that stage 25, 26, 27 million copies. And I'd always said when I stopped enjoying that particular genre, I'd move on to something else. Mm. But what was that something else? 
And I was very lucky to be given a book by my literary agent, Changing Places by David Lodge, the British academic and humorist. And it was such a beautiful, funny, clever book. It really shook me up. And I ended up writing to him and saying how much I enjoyed it and mm. uh, how much I'd like to try something different. He was very encouraging. So I started looking for different projects that really had no relevance to what I'd done before. And I mentioned earlier how once you've had a certain level of success, the door's open, you can try a lot. Mm. But the truth is you can try a lot within a, a fairly narrow parameter around what you've already succeeded mm. in. Uh, in business, in the creative arts, people are more risk-averse than you'd imagine in so much as they like the low-hanging fruit. Mm. You know, Robert Downing Jr. can do whatever he wants so long as he's wearing a red and gold metal suit. <laughs> and they'll give him $30 million every time he does it. <laughs> now, he's a fabulously gifted artist. Yeah. But he, even he struggles to get those other projects up. So on a far more modest level, I wanted to showcase the essay by Bertrand Russell that I feel has has defined my professional life and my personal life as far as how I approach the way I want to live and how I want to use my time and energy, which I'm very appreciative of having had 17 surgeries, is, is finite. And uh, so I took it around and and, believe, and nobody wanted it. So I took the risk on myself and finally partnered up with an independent publisher in Sydney, Nero Books, a division of Black Ink. And uh, it was incredibly gratifying that uh, people sort of said, oh, no, he's the funny, humorous gift book guy. He's not... Uh, someone who has any understanding of philosophy and so forth, which of course is nonsense. It's just that's what I've been successful for in the past. Yeah. They gave me that opportunity and it sold out, I think, in 10 days. Nice. And the next copy in three weeks. <laughs> and then when my American publisher at the time didn't think, no, oh, that's not, that's too highbrow for us, I was very flattered that St. Martin's Press grabbed it. So right. it's been one of those very satisfying journeys. But the lesson for me is. You have to be prepared to begin over. And you you once said that reading the um, Bertrand Russell essay in Praise of Idleness, it changed your life. It did. How so? As a creative person, every idea you'll ever have is derived from the experiences you have in this life. Everything. So if you're serious about creativity, if you want to create interesting books, you have to live an interesting life. Mm. It's just, a, it's just, it's just a, 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 an absolute titanium-clad prerequisite. There's no two ways about it. And... If you don't take that time to invest in your original ideas and just looking for answers where there are currently no questions, if you don't invest in that kind of shareable churn, then your dreams get lost in the incandescent spume of the digital age. Reading Bertrand Russell at a time when I was incredibly busy producing two books a year and promoting them and taking business meetings around the world for, in one case, 10 months of the year. Yeah. Uh, and hard to believe. I mean, you look at me now and you go, oh, here's this incredibly handsome man with perfect teeth and you'd be right JD <laughs> but no I'm not actually a people person I'm a forest creature so I find that incredibly draining mm. and I realized I needed to be less busy and I needed to really commit to the projects that meant the most to me and that were genuine long shots and in my downtime I had to do things that were active that actually moved the needle as they say mm. and so I invested myself more heavily in wildlife conservation and I took incredible risks with projects that meant nothing to anybody else, mm. but to me, uh, a great deal. And examples of that was my time living in French Polynesia and competing in the Hava, in the, in the, in the strongman games and so forth, uh, qualifying to be part of the Russian space program in, in Moscow. Ridiculous things. But uh, it meant a great deal to me, and I had that opportunity, and I stopped looking for reasons to say no. Another one of your recent books um, was, it's the extraordinary true story about Penguin the Magpie. Um, mm. Tell me about that. 
it's a very different, again, a very different book for me and uh, such a joy. Did not see this project coming. I was looking to do something quite different. Mm. Um, and now that I'm based here, not technically by choice, but in romantic exile, <laughs> um, have been looking at doing projects in television and film as a, as a writer-producer. But I got a phone call from Cameron Bloom, who's a very successful, very talented Australian photographer. And we had connected. He'd come to some fundraising events at Taronga Zoo, where I happened to be the governor, to raise money for wildlife conservation. So we, we weren't close mates or anything, but we were friends. And he reached out to me because he, he, I knew the story of his, his beautiful wife, Sam. Sam is a very athletic, dynamic person. I think of her as sort of a cross between... Sam Stozer and Lane Beachley. You know, she's this mm-hmm. all-Australian girl and fit and strong and active. She plays soccer. She was a, a runner. She was a kayaker. She was a very gifted surfer and skateboarder. And she was a, a, a nurse, a senior nursing sister in the neurological ward at Prince Alfred. And she was a, a mother of three beautiful boys. So wonderful life. They've been childhood sweethearts. They go on a holiday to Thailand uh, on their first morning at this beautiful, remote little village. They walk up to an observation deck on their hotel. They're taking pictures and getting their bearings for the adventure to come. And they didn't know that the entire balcony was afflicted with dry rot. The balcony gives way, carries Sam over the edge. She falls, uh, you know, six, seven meters onto hard concrete tiles. Mm. And uh, she survived, but um, was left uh, as a paraplegic. So... This was one particular story that I knew of, and I was heartbroken for them. I didn't know the other one, and that was that she was having lunch with her mother when, and this is after she'd gone home from hospital, which was the most difficult period for her, and she was deeply depressed. And a baby magpie was tossed out of a nearby Norfolk pine tree and fell, uh, you know, 30, 40 meters down onto the driveway. And uh, the injured chick looked like it was going to die, They couldn't find anyone else to help them. And so they took it home to nurse it. And uh, if it didn't get better, they're going to bury it in the backyard. But she was able to nurse this little bird back to health. And in the process, this unusual bond formed. The bird was always free to leave, never in a cage. But she started realizing her self-worth all over again, that she could make an impact just by rescuing this little bird. And the little bird somehow seemed to have a connection with Sam. And uh, the two were inseparable. Cameron, meanwhile, has photographed this thing every day. I think that was his therapy. That kind of saved him, actually, was being able to use the camera and uh, treat it as an art project to to give him some emotional distance from what was a devastating family tragedy. Mm. So he started getting followers on Instagram. I think, you know, 80, 70, 80,000 people fell in love with this little bird. And people started approaching him to publish a book about it. Someone said, oh, you know what would be great? Do a Blue Day book with this penguin. <laughs> penguin the magpie, they call the magpie penguin. And he said, you know, I know the Blue Day book guy. I'm no writer. I'll call him. And he called me here in Los Angeles mm. and said, would you write the book? And uh, I took a few weeks to think about it and do a little bit of research onto the situation, check the newspaper's articles to see whether I felt there was something I could do. And mm. ultimately, I decided to give it a go. But it was very different for me to do a book about living people who I knew and whose story was so raw and so personal. Uh, So it was a very difficult experience. We would spend, uh, you know, several hours a day on Skype for eight months. We did that in the interviews before I was able to write the book. And I'd always try to be upbeat and strong and end on a positive note. But after it was over and my wife had come home, I would just be crying my 
uh, it was just really painful. Yeah. And uh, I, I have so much love for them. I think the best thing to come out of this has been the friendship that we have. Yeah. I think of them as my little brother and sister. And I just want every opportunity for them. And what I want most importantly with the success of the book and now the movie adaptation is that uh, you know, a percentage, 10% of everything goes back into support research into spinal cord injury. Mm. Cures. It is something that can be cured. Mm. And uh, I want it. It's, it's been a very unusual journey and one that I've been incredibly grateful for. I didn't see it coming and it's been life-changing. And you mentioned you're going to now um, reach a whole new audience on the screen. Tell me about that process. From the very beginning... It felt such a beautiful movie and cinematic story, particularly because of Cameron Bloom's photographs. I mean, they're so, they're so compelling. And we really wanted to make a movie, but not just any movie. And so we focused on, in our wildest dreams, who would be the, the perfect lead. And to be Sam Bloom, you have to be an actor who can have that vast emotional range and also be an athlete, a physical athlete. So we set our sights on getting Naomi Watts which seemed ridiculous at the time, but like every other situation in life where you refuse to give in, you eventually succeed. And so we were able to get the book to her. She loved it. Not only did she want to play the lead role, she wanted to produce the movie, which shocked and delighted us. Mm. But when you have someone of that caliber attached to your uh, to your, your movie, suddenly this door's open. The next thing you know, Reese Witherspoon saw a, a, the book clip the, the book video that we'd use to promote the book using Cameron and Sam's home movies. She fell in love with that. Reese Witherspoon chips in to buy the rights. Bruna Papandrea, arguably Australia's most successful producer today, she came on board. And of course, we have my longtime friend Emma Cooper, who's been best mates with Naomi forever. And, I, and I'm, it's a strange way it comes together. Mm. It was a long process of being patient and saying no to a lot of other offers in order to get the exact person that you really wanted and many good things have come from that. And that's a lesson I wish I'd learned when I was 20-something. Yeah. Speaking of lessons you wish you'd learned, um, John Cleese, I think, once summarized your life as one long suicide attempt. <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> you did say that. What, uh, what did he mean by that? Okay. So John Cleese is a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, for whatever supposed erudition you think I possessed, he is the Great Library of Alexandria, and I am the corner news agent. All right, <laughs> so he is at another level from a cerebral point of view, but he is a goddamn coward when it <laughs> when it comes to any kind of physical danger or risk. Mm. He loves animals, and I've taken so we've been friends for a long time. We're both uh, life benefactors of Gerald Durrell's uh, Conservation Trust in the UK and, and Africa, and so well, that, that's how we met. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up. Uh, letting me produce some shows for him in Australia that raise money for conservation. We've been friends ever since. So he's my one true famous friend. Let's not let the listeners believe that I know a lot of powerful <laughs> and talented and beautiful people because I do not. I'm, I'm much more at home with wild creatures. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so I've had, I've had 17 surgeries so far from moments of very poor judgment and misadventure. I was a paratrooper and I was a rugby player and I was a, a, an amateur boxer, so you expect me to be a little bit battered. But uh, I took up desert racing and I crashed so many motorbikes at high speed. And finally, my, um, my orthopedic surgeon. And you never want to be a person who has an orthopedic surgeon when you've, when you've reached that point. Uh, so I, I drew the line there and uh, much the relief of my wife. Other things, you know, I remember, I remember skydiving and I was afraid of heights. So I took up recreational skydiving in order to be a better paratrooper. And it did. It helped a great deal. Mm. But I remember one time learning how to spot the electrozone from the aircraft, which is not an easy thing to do. 
and myself and some other students making a terrible mistake and ended up miles away. Mm. And so I basically took the brakes off my parachute and just gunned it for the, uh, for the drop zone about a mile away and not quite making it, but still not taking the brakes. I think I can just get over that fence. And I ended up crashing into a barbecue at the local aero club next door. <laughs> and I wiped out this entire grill covered in onions, <laughs> uh, you know, just in my feet and my buttocks. Just, just rake these hot onions, <laughs> and they're all, you know, they're all out there drinking shandy and pims, and this, and this airborne gorilla just comes, you know, flying through the scene. So I've made some poor choices, I'll confess. <laughs> and final question: one of your many um, passions is obviously wildlife. Tell me about that. Where did it come from? What drives it? My, my life, really, my professional life is humor and wildlife. That's really my sweet spot. Mm. And it derived directly from them. Gerald Durrell in particular, I read My Family and Other Animals, his most successful book when I was probably 10 or 11. And it was the first book for grown-ups that made me laugh out loud. I mean, laugh my head off. And I read it because my mother was laughing hysterically when she read it and I wanted to see what she was reading. And that changed my life. I read all his books and I love his progressive ideas about conservation, that zoos should not be you know, tacky and cruel theme parks where you just come in and throw peanuts at monkeys. It should be a hub for modern conservation practice. And he also went even further and he said, let's not focus on the big glamorous animals. Mm. Let's get what he called the little brown jobbies, the little (laughs) things that no one really cares about, but whose position in the web of life supports a great many other species. Mm. And I just really admired him, uh, the way he did that and his extraordinary talent. And uh, again, Having lost my military career at a young age, I was felt entitled to pursue that more actively. And it seemed natural to me, particularly having had commercial success with books about or featuring animals, that I should contribute back to that. So we made that a policy very early on. In every market where my books are sold, I try to give back to wildlife conservation. Mm. And what's funny is by doing that, which sounds incredibly noble uh, for a thick-fingered Philistine like myself, it's brought me such joy. And you mentioned John Cleese, one of my heroes, one of my idols. We're mates because we both do that. Mm. I would never have imagined that I would ever cross paths with such a luminous talent. So it's actually given me more than I have contributed by a long margin. Mm. And then being here in Los Angeles... And um, there was a couple of late night shows who needed a new wildlife expert. And because it's Hollywood, no one does things normally. Instead of going through proper experts, she calls this host, calls Betty White. Betty White calls LA Zoo. Do you have anyone aged, whatever, you know, 30, 40, who could be this job? And the curator of LA Zoo says, oh, you know what? BTG's in town. And that's how I got the job. <laughs> I did not deserve it. I had no idea what I was doing. And I did. I took some animals on late night television. And these opportunities come out of nowhere. I would never have done that at home. As a Tasmanian who, who just yearns for fresh Tasmanian air, I find the equivalent in Alaska. So I'm in Alaska all the time, mm. so long that I've actually been adopted by one of the Native American uh, tribes. Wow. I'm actually a member of the Deshitan clan of the Tlingit people. I just think it's an incredible honor mm. because I spend the last five seasons of the last four years just tracking these brown bears and documenting them for an upcoming project. And we may have actually discovered a new brown bear subspecies, and which is huge news. And uh, we produced a two-hour documentary for Animal Planet that will be out next year. Okay, That's the sort of opportunity that can happen here Mm. 
when uh, you know the machinery of Hollywood gives you a chance that you could never have anticipated. So again, didn't choose to be here. I would rather be in Tasmania, but incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I've been given in America. They gave me my start and they give me my next lease of life, my next chapter. Amen. Well, BTG, you've been so generous with your time. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks for the chat. Mate, anytime. Please do leave us a review and follow the Australian Consulate General Los Angeles on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.